Good morning and greetings. I'm David. And welcome. Great to be together with friends on this beautiful Sunday morning. Our call to worship will be words of Aaron Copeland. And I've sort of given my own title here, The Promise of Creative Living. Quote, I must believe in the ultimate good of the world and of life as I live it in order to create a work of art. You cannot make art out of fear and suspicion. You can make it only out of affirmative beliefs. This sense of affirmation can be had only in part from one's own inner being. For the rest, it must be continually reactivated by a creative and yay-saying atmosphere in the life about one. That's an excerpt from his Norton Lectures uh, at Harvard in 1952. I'll light the chalice and we'll have our musical response. Words are printed in your program. We'll say together our unison affirmation in your program and also on the easel. Love is the spirit of this fellowship. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth and love, and to help one another. We'll now have our opening hymn, number 16. Tis a gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, we'll be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend we shan't be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight Till by turning, turning, we come round right. Something's turning. <laughs> Something's, yep. Something's turning warmer. Yes. I have a responsive reading. It's number 532 in your gray hymnal. Uh, 
I'll read the regular type, and if you folks would read the italics. Titled The Music of the Spheres. The Music of the Spheres. Its rhythms are the equal, repeated seasons, the beating of the heart. The cycles of stars and corn. Rhythms of moon and tide, one single rhythm in planets, atoms, sea. Melody, accord, arpeggios, the harp of the universe, unity behind apparent multiplicity. Thank you. Our program today is on the American classical composer Aaron Copland, who lived from 1900 to 1990. And uh, I think part of the genesis, between, genesis behind this kind of program is the first Unitarian service I ever attended, which was an informal suburb service in Bethlehem, PA, around about 1987 or so. And a gentleman was playing a Beethoven symphony on a Victrola that he'd brought in and talking about it. So. Uh, thanks for um, giving me the chance to play class classical DJ again here. Uh, the spare figure of Aaron Copland has a larger-than-life profile in American classical music of the last century. Uh, Copland, who lived the last 20 of his 90 years in a modest home called Rock Hill on South Washington Street in Cortland, just south of Peekskill, was a composer, conductor, teacher and writer whose influence on several generations of artists and listeners was immense. I've loved his music for years and offered this out of that long time enjoyment. Rock Hill is listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and it's the centerpiece of the Copeland House Nonprofit Foundation. It's used as an artist residence, retreat, and meeting center. Composer fellowships are offered, along with educational and community outreach. Copeland House also puts on a program of recitals every season. Right now, there are different locations in Westchester. The normal location is the Meerstead Estate that's currently being refurbished. This is one of those, one of their brochures that I have up on at the front. This year. Uh, the active 90-year life of Aaron Copeland would be impossible to fully treat in a short presentation. Part of a story I've found most interesting is how and why much of his music came to represent a geographic middle America in the sense of prairie and forest, open spaces, and the quote-unquote common folk of a generation. As heard in his compositions, Appalachian Spring, Rodeo, Billy the Kid, El Salon Mexico, Lincoln Portrait, The Red Pony, and others. Uh, Copeland was a gay Jewish intellectual from Brooklyn who studied in Paris, admired jazz, incorporated it in his work, and lectured at Harvard. How did this translate to the so-called prairie school of American classical music? A well, sort of musical counterpart, you could say, to the Hudson River School of Painting. Aaron Copeland, the Hudson River composer, Maybe, since he lived in many places in the area, in Manhattan, in Rockland, in Ossining, before he purchased uh, Rock Hill. I'll have some musical examples to sound out this theme of Copeland's identification with, you could say, the common person. Where better to start with than with his fanfare for the common man, which he wrote for a composer's fanfare competition for patriotic support in 1942. He later, later incorporated it into his third symphony. So bear with me while I adjust sound balances here.
majestic stuff. Copeland was born in Brooklyn on November 14, 1900, to a Lithuanian Jewish immigrant family. He was the youngest of five children. Two others would also have musical talent. Aaron was exposed to music at weddings and family get-togethers and started writing songs at age eight and a mini opera at age 11. He studied with several well-known teachers in New York City, attended opera and symphony, and played in dance bands after graduating high school. His strong interest in European music took him to Paris at the age of 22. He enrolled in sessions at a school for American students, the Fontainebleau School of Music. He soon found he wanted something more challenging than what the school offered, so he connected with a teacher and a guide, Nadia Boulanger, who could easily be a subject for a program of her own. In Copeland's own words about uh, Boulanger, quote, it was wonderful for me to find a teacher with such openness of mind, while at the same time she held firm ideas of right and wrong in musical matters. The confidence she had in my talents and her belief in me were at the very least flattering and more, they were crucial to my development at this time of my career. He had planned one year of study in France, but stayed with Boulanger for three years. Uh, the early, this early period of Copeland's composing career found his music influenced by jazz, and also a dissonance that was in vogue at the time. Some audiences found it hard to listen to. They hissed at or walked out on performances. The 1925 premiere with the New York Philharmonic of his organ symphony with Boulanger as soloist famously resulted in these words to the audience from the conductor Walter Damrosch, quote, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you'll agree that if, the, if a gifted young man can write a symphony like this at age 23, within five years, he'll be ready to commit murder. This was Damrosch's attempt at humor to calm his rather stuffy audience. He apologized to Copeland after the concert. So I'll play a little bit of this piece and you folks can decide for yourselves if this is murderous music or not. About. Yeah, murder perhaps is a little on the strong side. Uh, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, yeah, perhaps in need of some chamomile tea at the very least, right? <laughs> but along with the jazzy or the dissonant or, or things like block chords like that, a thread of uh, simpler and more direct idiom began to be heard in his music at the same time. Um, next piece I'll play is part of uh, a series of five pieces. It's the middle piece called Interlude 
from a collection called Music for the Theater. It's also from So you can hear the jazz influence definitely in that piece. And he'd, uh, he'd return to that kind of slow swing in some later works also. In 1932, Copeland made the first of many trips to Latin America to compose, lecture, and spend time with fellow artists like uh, composer Carlos Chavez and painter Diego Rivera. Copeland and Chavez became lifelong friends who consistently supported and encouraged each other's music. Copeland's first truly popular piece was the result of his Mexico visits and premiered in 1937 called El Salon Mexico, subtitled Popular Type Dance Hall in Mexico City. And here's an excerpt.
more, but time limitations. Uh, piece is about 12 minutes long. That's a wonderful piece. And uh, he, he really uh, had quite a love affair with Latin America. He returned there many times. He would uh, go there to, uh, to go on sort of personal retreats, uh, composing retreats, so he would have time and space and quiet to, to work. So uh, this piece kicked off a very busy composing period in his career, and last, which lasted the, the next several decades. His best love pieces all date from this time. He touched on virtually all musical forms, chamber music, symphony, ballet, opera, song and choral, and film music. He collaborated with numerous other artists, among them choreographers Agnes DeMille, Martha Graham, and Jerome Robbins, writers Clifford Odets and Thornton Wilder, conductors Serge Kusevitsky and Leonard Bernstein. Numerous awards included the Pulitzer Prize for Appalachian Spring in 1944 and an Oscar for his film score to William Wyler's 1949 movie, The Heiress. He had a keen interest in current, affair, current events and public affairs, dating back to his early years in Brooklyn. As an engaged citizen, he read newspapers and journals every morning, continuing to do so all his life. How this informed his music is summarized in this lecture excerpt. Quote, the artist should feel affirmed and buoyed up by his community. Art and the life of art and the life of art must mean something in the deepest sense to the everyday citizen. When that happens, America will have achieved a maturity to which every sincere artist will have contributed. I think America's still working on that one. Copeland's response to the Great Depression and to his Latin American visits was to reach people through his music. About his depiction of the American West, he said, quote, every American has a feeling of what the West is like. You absorb it. It was just a feat of the imagination, unquote. And I'd say of reaching people, young and old, where they lived. Not many did it as well as Copeland. And music for the ballets Billy the Kid and Rodeo are prime examples, and um, this will be from Rodeo.
part of Saturday Night Waltz. This is Hoedown. Anybody ever seen Rodale? Uh, it was a revolutionary piece in 1942, and it was first performed at the Metropolitan Opera House and received about a 40-minute ovation uh, when it was done. Agnes DeBille uh, had done the choreography, and it was pretty radical stuff uh, for the time to uh, bring a more modern idiom into uh, the classical dance um, environment. And... Uh, had a huge impact, and so has his music ever since, one of his most popular pieces. Uh, the next music I'll play is uh, from a film score called uh, The Red Pony. It was a 1949 film starring Robert Mitchum and Myrna Loy about a young boy's coming of age on a California ranch. It's based on a, John's, a series of John Steinbeck stories and a personal favorite of mine.
So as you can hear, he's just a brilliant orchestrator. He, he was uh, so talented at uh, taking that whole orchestra and, and making such a wonderful variety of sounds with it. So Copeland's concern for the everyday citizen also grew out of his lifelong socialist convictions. He had many friends and contacts in the socialist and American communist communities, such as the Composers Collective. Likely, he had friends in or may even have visited Mohican Colony, not far from here. He never joined a political party, but he was very sympathetic to basic socialist principles, supported left political candidates, and lectured to many groups. This would prove a challenge during the McCarthy era. He had one session with McCarthy's House on American Activities Committee in 1953, where, with legal help, he successfully avoided any further interviewing. Earlier that year, uh, his piece, A Lincoln Portrait, which is um, about a 15-minute piece with a spoken narrator section of Lincoln's words, uh, it was due to be performed at the Eisenhower inaugural, but it was canceled due to, to right-wing political protests. Yet he fared better than many others. Eventually his music would be sought even by former adversary Richard Nixon for Nixon's second inaugural, and he would receive the Congressional Gold Medal in 1986 from the same political body that tried to throw him under the bus in the 1950s. In those McCarthy-era times, Copeland wrote his, uh, one of his operas, this one called The Tender Land. He had discussed a possible subject with his current partner, Eric Johns, and John's idea, along with Copeland's, was for something based on a book called Let Us Now Praise Famous Men by an author named James Agee, who was mostly known for uh, being a film critic. But in particular, the photos that were published in that book by Walker Evans of Depression-era sharecroppers and migrant workers in the South. Photos like these. So I'd like to finish with uh, the wonderful Act One finale from the opera, and uh, apologize in advance if you're not a big opera fan, but uh, this is some of his most wonderful music. Um, it's piece is called The Promise of Living, and here are some of the words from what will be sung from Eric John's libretto. Quote, the promise of living with hope and thanksgiving is born of our loving our friends and our labor. The promise of growing with faith and with knowing is born of our sharing our love with our neighbor. The promise of living, the promise of growing, is born of our singing in joy and thanksgiving. The promise of ending in right understanding is peace in our own hearts and peace with our neighbor.
Sorry, I should have mentioned a little about the story of the opera. The story of the opera is about two uh, uh, itinerant sharecropping, wandering guys who uh, end up on a farm in supposedly in Kansas and um, are just looking for a little bit of work before they move on to the next uh, their next um, venue. And uh, there's a uh, young daughter, young young lady on this farm who's about ready to graduate from high school. She falls in love with one of the itinerant workers and decides that she wants to see the wider world. And um, the act one finale is uh, before they're going to have a party and they're, um, they're sharing the fact that they'll, the workers will be helping the grandfather uh, with the June harvest. And um, it ends up actually with the workers, with the one worker realizing he doesn't really want to be tied down and with the young girl realizing she wants to be free so they go their separate ways but there's a there's a particular line in the opera um, these two workers had been sort of uh, suspected of and implicated in some molestations that had happened nearby they're proven to be innocent um, Eric Johns puts in the libretto through the grandfather's words you're guilty all the same which comes right out of the McCarthy era definitely so uh, I'd like to end a uh, quote from Pearl Lang, who was a dancer in the original production of Appalachian Spring. With Aaron's music, one leaps not across the stage, but across the land. We thank him for the wonder of that defiant innocence and affirmation that sings in his music about America. And I would say he sounded the best of us to ourselves, and people of all walks listened. And we celebrate his life and art. Thank you. Jim. Um, I just wanted to thank you, David, I, when you started this talk. So um, when I was growing up, <clears throat> we, me and my brothers, we, we were into obviously popular music at the time, but every Sunday my dad would be listening to Jonathan Schwartz on WNYC, listening to the American Songbook, that show on dedicated. And he just loved that music. And uh, later on in life, he created a little makeshift studio in his uh, in, in his garage when he was retiring, and he would put together shows, kind of like at Jonathan Schwartz like shows on the American Songbook, and he did a few dedicated to Aaron Copeland. He would have loved to be here, and as I was listening to the stories, I was just bringing back all those associations from childhood of listening to that music and growing up on that music, sort of vicariously through my father. And just loving that that uh, that whole uh, genre and yeah. all of it, you know, it was wonderful. So thank you so much. Sure. Yeah, music it can be attached to a lot of wonderful memories. Yeah. yeah. One way to access. Thank you, David. I, I knew the name Aaron Copeland, but I really was not familiar with any of his history. Or, and uh, it was like a, a, like, like a course in Aaron Copeland, and I really enjoyed getting to know all the different flavors of him. <laughs> it was very interesting. I appreciate it. Thank you. Very welcome. Yeah, thank you, David. Uh, this, is, this was an awesome lesson. <laughs> to learn on Sunday. Um, my question is, what do you know what school he went to when he was a kid um, in New York? Did, did he go to Fieldston, do you know? Uh, it might be mentioned in his biography. Let me see, it's listed, if I can find it quickly. Background matters. Musical. First musical teachers. 
I guess the reason why I ask because um, there's a lot of famous people who went to school that I, that I work at, and I figured maybe he went there as well. Right. Oh, you did? Oh, okay. Okay. Never mind. Okay. Thanks, Errol. Okay. Sorry to put you in that position. Thank you. The internet's faster than. I'm Ralph. My introduction to Aaron Copeland was from my mother, who was a ballet fanatic. Um, but my, my interest continued because I'm a big movie music person, and so that part of him also was of interest. Uh, also, uh, I spent many years living near Colbach Pond Road in, in Cortland, and was under the impression that he had lived there. Do you know whether that's true? Not that I'm aware of. So that would be this side of Peekskill. Yeah, yeah. As far as I know, he only lived on the south part of Cortland, you know, south of Peekskill, at Rock Hill. He'd lived in Ossining before that. Before he bought Rock Hill, he lived in Ossining for several years. You said Washington Street, which is a different street, but Washington Street, I know where it is, but Colbach Pond are not that far apart, so I don't know. It must have been a confusion on my part. Okay. David, I just wanted to say that uh, listening to the music and hearing your presentation reminds me at this time of heightened political angst of the best in America. Y you know, you, you think about uh, someone who was able to capture in, in, in song uh, what's really great about this country, what has been great. And now as we struggle with things that are not so great, it's... Uh, it's a relief and a kind of, uh, I don't know, it's just, uh, it's just refreshing. So I thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, as you know, McCarthy and his, his buddies went after the artist community big time because many of them, some of them quite intentionally, some not really thinking much about it, you know, had gotten closely connected with socialist organizations in the 30s and 40s. And of course, during the war, we were allies with Russia. So. Uh, you know, so there was a lot of back and forth, and it made it made for some easy targets for the right wing in, in the 50s. And Copeland was quite fortunate that he had uh, he had a good Republican lawyer, um, a man named Cox, who helped defend him uh, against uh, McCarthy's, you know, totally spurious accusations. And, and uh, you know, he got off better than some. I mean, you know, as you know, there was a blacklist of artists, film people, you know, musicians, yeah, writers, creators. yes, dramatists, actors, et cetera, et cetera. So he, he avoided that, um, and um, he just threw himself back into his work. But he, he also worked behind the scenes to defend other people, friends of his. Thanks, David. I, it was really informative, as as usual. Um, I, what made me think, I, you know, as a person who was in band, pretty familiar playing, you know, Fanfare of the Common Man in Appalachian Spring, and so I have a personal relationship with some of these pieces, and I guess the artist as by an extension of that. But then listening to it and knowing about some of his background of his personal life, that you know his willingness to go to other people and learn from other people and not <laughs> and not appropriate in a way but really take it in and put it through his filter and let it influence his own work instead of just taking it and putting it back out is really impressive and also the fact that his you know i think that him being his sexuality i guess to put it bluntly the idea that at a time where you couldn't be that and to push through this creative process knowing that he had so much to lose in that way, that all of that would have gone away had he been you know, discovered. I, I don't know how much he struggled with that or whether it was an open secret or something like that, but I mean, just to think about that in that way adds so much more depth to his music. It's just amazing. Sure, thanks Eric. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, it was a, it was a time when it was in some ways easier to uh, to be closeted. He was a very private man. He was very private also about his um, spirituality, religion. He was 
if anyone asked, he would pretty much just admit to being an agnostic. But uh, if you looked at his library, you found a number of books on spirituality from different traditions. So he was obviously aware. And um, I think uh, I think it was a fairly tight knit community, you know, around him uh, and um, around friends, and they just they, they knew how to keep things pretty well under wraps. And, um, you know, whether it was a factor in the McCarthy investigation, it may well have been. You know, we don't really know for sure, but um, but um, you know, he he led a long and happy life. So, so in Saint David, thank you. Uh, for your thorough preparation and seamless presentation. Oh, me too, thank you. <laughs> it was a wonderful, wonderful program. Um, on a personal note, I, my, my first introduction to Copeland was in high school and we had this May festival and all the artsy kids would participate and you know there was a theater thing and a dance thing and a music thing. And I was in the theater thing, and my best friend Debbie was in the dance thing. And the, for the dance part, they, they did um, hoedown. Um, and, you know, they got dressed up in costumes and stuff. And I, because I wasn't in that part, I was able to sit in the seats and watch. And I just, I just fell so in love with, that, with the whole thing. And, and just hearing it now, just, I was just really revisiting that, doing a little time travel. I mean, I just would, could see it so clearly in my mind, you know, watching that and, and, um, and just loving it. And uh, it's amazing how music just brings that back, you know, that it's so vivid. That's great, that's a personal connection. Hi, thank you, that, that was just such a, a rich, gorgeous morning and you know and the music is and and what always fascinates me um about copeland is that it it is so expansive it just keeps keeps going out and out and out um a couple of, of little tidbits one is that the essential theme to rodeo was a piece that he found a original field recording of a fiddler it, it well he it through Library of Congress and he took that theme note for note from from that piece. Um, I actually heard it played on the radio one day. Mm -hmm. I think they saved it and digitalized it because otherwise it would be dust by now. Um, and then took that's where he he went with it. And musicians do that all the time, is they find little nuggets and pieces that other musicians have created. And then see where they take where where they take it. Sure. Um, another thing is that um, the ballet, the Graham Ballet, Appalachian Spring, which is what won the Pulitzer Prize, um, is in and of itself its own piece of work because it was Graham, Copeland, and Noguchi did the s the set the stage set for it, um, and that piece was actually filmed very primitively on some kind of empty sound stage, one camera, back, I think, in the early 60s, and it is available. They may have it in the library. One can find it um, on a DVD if you want to see a semblance of what the piece looked like, because certainly it was very different when Graham was not um, you know, 23 years older than when she created the piece, and you had an entire uh, theatrical stage in which to perform it. But if you want to find that, it is available, and it's you on get YouTube. it's on YouTube. It is on YouTube. Somebody, yeah, somebody was smart, so yeah, from you the can. Early 60s, yeah, and Martha Graham is, is in it. Yeah, that's what you're talking about. Okay, thank you. We'll uh, close our service. Did you have a another hymn? Close enough that maybe we should just. Sure. I'll extinguish, I'll extinguish the chalice. We extinguish this flame.
but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we carry in our hearts until we're together. Go in peace.